words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that chapter which we read at the beginning, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 24, looking particularly at verses 24 to 27. Verses 24 to 27 in the 24th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him by Paul that he might lose him. Wherefore he sent for him the offner and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Now here we are looking at one of the great uh, dramatic incidents recorded in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I suppose that is the peculiar feature and the most characteristic feature of this particular book, that it abounds in these human situations, in these dramatic incidents, which are recorded here in such a marvelous and extraordinary manner by the writer Luke. It's an incident, like all these incidents, which is full of interest, and full of matter which is most urgent for our consideration. Now, it seems to me that the best way to approach this particular incident is, first of all, to just look at the people, the figures concerned. Felix, his wife Drusilla, and the Apostle Paul. We can't fully understand what happened on this occasion and its real significance unless we are aware of certain things about the three figures, and especially Felix and Drusilla. Felix was a man who, like his brother, whose name was Pallas, had been uh, born a slave. But uh, he had uh, succeeded with his brother in becoming a free man of the Roman Empire. They were obviously young men, of a real ability and added to that ambition. And though they thus had been born in a condition of slavery, they had achieved freedom. Not only that, Pallas, the brother of Felix, had succeeded in becoming a favorite of the Roman emperor. And as the result of his becoming a favorite of the Roman emperor, he had secured a post for his brother. And so this man, Felix, who had been born as a slave, finds himself as the governor of Palestine under the emperor from Rome. And being put into this exalted position, he began to think and to feel that he could do almost anything that he might choose to do. We have a character sketch of this man written by the historian Tacitus. He describes him in this striking and pregnant phrase. With all cruelty and lust, he exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. 
What a terrible description to give of a man. Well, there he was. His character was this. He was a clever man, as I've said. He was unscrupulous. And as we see from this incident, he was avaricious, fond of money. He was voluptuous and licentious. And he was most unjust. The Apostle Paul, you remember in his defense, put a case that was quite unanswerable. These charges that had been brought against him were pure invention, had no basis or substance in fact whatsoever. And these men who charged him had been quite unable to bring anything to substantiate their charge and their case, in spite of the fact that Felix knew that and should have discharged the prisoner immediately. He didn't do so. He continued to keep him in prison because of these personal and unworthy motives that moved him and animated him. He was an utterly unjust and unscrupulous man. Well, now, that's Felix. What about Drusilla? Well, Drusilla, as we are told, was a Jewess. And listen to her pedigree. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I and the sister of Herod Agrippa II. In other words, her father was the man who had murdered the Apostle James. Her great-uncle was the man who had likewise murdered John the Baptist. And her great-grandfather was the man who at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ had been guilty of murdering all those babes and innocents in the whole neighborhood of Bethlehem. That is her story, except that I have to add this. Though she was a Jewess, she had married a pagan king. But eventually, circumstances brought her and Felix together. They met. And as the phrase goes, they fell in love with one another. What it means, of course, is that they both, both felt a licentious desire for one another. They were both married. But Felix, voluptuous and sensuous as he was, as I've described him, he enticed Drusilla to leave her husband so that at this moment they were living together in a state of adultery. Now, it's very important, you see, that we should know that these are the people with whom we are dealing. And here they are in a position of authority and of power. And suddenly one afternoon, they both feel it would be rather a good and an interesting thing to call the prisoner, Paul, who was in their charge and in their care, and uh, just uh, listen to him, hear what he'd got to say about himself and about this Christian faith. So Paul is produced, and there we see him confronting these two people, Felix and Drusilla. Now, I mustn't and I need not tonight to take any of your time in describing the character of the great apostle. You're familiar with that, but there is one thing in particular that stands out on this particular occasion, and that is his extraordinary courage. Did you notice the way that he spoke to them? Indeed, there is almost an amusing side to this incident, because at the beginning, Felix and Drusilla seem to be in charge, and the apostle is the prisoner in chains. And uh, you would expect him to be doing the trembling, wouldn't you? 
They are free. He is a prisoner. They have got everything that can be desired. He is languishing in a prison. So I say, naturally you would expect that uh, the apostle would be trembling in fear, and especially as he comes before them again, wondering what they're going to do with him, what they're going to decide with respect to his future. But you notice that the position is very soon something very different from that which I've imagined. The only trembling that I read about here is the trembling which afflicted Felix as the little apostle in all the grandeur and the magnificence of his great faith, his knowledge of the Lord and his master mind speaks to them and addresses them. And there you seem to be the judges are prisoners, as it were, trembling in the dark. Well, now that is the scene. One of the great uh, and one of the most dramatic incidents which is to be found anywhere in the Bible. The persons, therefore, are of great interest to us, but it is to other aspects that I'm anxious to direct your attention this evening. Let us look at this to discover the apostle's method, how he deals with such a situation, how he evangelizes. Let us also notice the content of the Christian gospel, for it's put before us here very plainly. And let us end by looking at the appalling picture which we are given here of unbelief. The real character of unbelief. The essential truth about every person who is not a Christian. Those are the things that are taught us here by this incident. And I'm calling attention to them. Because, as I say, I believe these things are more urgently needed today than perhaps ever before. These things, unfortunately, are needed by the Christian church herself. And they're also needed by all who ever listen to the gospel, or who, like Felix and Drusilla, affect any interest in it and what it has to say. There is great confusion today as to what the church is, as to what the gospel is, as to how the gospel should be presented, as to how it should be listened to, as to what should be done with respect to it. Here's the answer. Here is the authority, the called apostle of Jesus Christ, the man who was arrested in a career of persecution and turned into the apostle to the Gentiles, the man who brought Christianity first to the continent of Europe, the mighty apostle who has written these great epistles which we have in our New Testament canon. Here is our authority. Let's listen. Let's discover what he's got to say on these momentous questions. Let me encourage you to do so for this reason. That if you read the history of the past, the history of the church in the past particularly, you will find that in every period of reformation and of revival, the church has always returned to this pattern. I see another man, a pale shadow of this mighty apostle, but a man who reminds me of him. I see a man called Martin Luther standing in similar circumstances and doing exactly the same thing. John Calvin, John Knox. Don't you think of John Knox as you read this incident? and the way in which he could terrorize Mary, Queen of Scots. She was more afraid of his prayers than she, were, than, than she was of legions of soldiers. It's the same thing always, in every great period of reformation and of revival. Very well, then. Let's look at these things. First of all, let us look at this. 
how I say the gospel is to be preached and presented and as to how it is to be listened to. Notice, first of all, the negatives. Felix and Drusilla send for Paul and here he is standing before them. What happens? Well, may I indicate to you that they didn't have a discussion. That's the great thing today, isn't it? The religious department of the BBC doesn't preach on Sunday nights and has a discussion. This is the thing. Let's have a discussion. Oh, they say the modern man, he won't listen to preaching. But he's always ready to have a discussion. He's got an interest in these things and uh, he is interested in them intellectually and as a point of view. Well, now, let's, let's meet with him and let's have a friendly chat. Let's hear what he's got to say and uh, try and answer his criticisms and, of course, go as far as we can to meet him. Let's have a wonderful discussion. We've been told now for years that if only we did this instead of preaching dogmatically that people would be one to the Christian church. But the statistics are telling us that they're going further and further away from the church. Of course they are. The Christian gospel is not to be discussed. The gospel starts with this principle, that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. Not only that, he cannot understand them. I believe there is a discussion taking place probably at this minute on one of the programs of the BBC. A Christian minister and a man are having a discussion about the deity of Christ. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul doing that? Now, you see, this woman, this woman, Drusilla, she as a Jewess was interested, of course, in Christianity. She'd heard all about it. Felix, as Paul reminds him, had been a number of years in that part of the world and he'd heard all about these things and he again was very interested. Well, you'd have thought you'd got the ideal circumstances for a roundtable conference, for a discussion. But there's no discussion here. The Apostle Paul never allowed anybody to sit in a spirit of detachment and objectivity and folded arms just considering it. No, no, that sort of thing doesn't lead to people trembling. Christianity is not a matter for discussion, still less for entertainment. Have you noticed the increasing element of entertainment that comes in? See, we must meet the people where they are. Short prayers, bright and snappy, singing the same everything, that's the rule. You see, even when we talk about prayer, we are not thinking about God. We are thinking about the people who are going to listen. Young people don't like long prayers. Give them short ones, therefore. That's the argument. Where does God come in in prayer? That wasn't the Apostle Paul's method. It has never been the method of the saints and the men whom God has used throughout the running centuries. What do we find then? What we find, of course, is authority. We find a proclamation. We find boldness of speech. We find plainness of utterance. Paul, we are told, reasoned with them. There was a reasoned discourse. Not flippant entertainment, not cracking jokes in order to put himself right with Reasoned discourse. On righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. And let me emphasize this aspect. Did you notice how personal he was? I'll show you in a moment. Now, how different the apostle was from, what so much, from so much of what happens today. Now, you would have thought that these were the ideal conditions in which the apostle could have voiced certain protests to the Roman governor. Wonderful opportunity. 
Here he is, the governor's actually sent for him. Why doesn't he bring up a list of complaints? Why doesn't he tell him about the attitude of the church towards certain things that the Roman emperor was doing at that time? It's a marvelous opportunity. There was slavery, there were many wrongs. Now why doesn't the apostle say, well at last, it's a heaven-sent opportunity. We've sent many messages up to the government, making appeals and suggestions, but at last they're actually sending me uh, them for me themselves. Now then, I'll tell him what I think about this, that and the other. Not a word of it. Not a word about the politics of the Roman Empire. Not a series of protests against what the emperor or the governor or anybody else was doing. The apostle had got a wonderful case for this. His whole imprisonment, as I say, was unjust. If ever a man had a case along the political social line, it was the apostle Paul. Doesn't mention it. What does he talk to them about? Well, not about politics, but about themselves about their personal lives, about their whole relationship to God. It was not only bold, it was personal, it was convicting, it was disturbing to the extent of making them tremble. And of course he was calling them to a decision, to abandon their life of evil and of sin, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. Now Felix resented all this, and that is why, you see, he dismissed the Apostle Paul. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. It had become so uncomfortable for him that he couldn't stand it any longer, and he gets rid of Paul. My friend, I want to ask a question at this point. Has the gospel of Jesus Christ ever made you feel uncomfortable? If it hasn't, if it hasn't, you've never really heard it. You're not a Christian. There is nothing more uncomfortable in the world than to listen to this gospel when it's truly preached. If this gospel has never annoyed you, you've never believed it. The gospel is something, I say, that is utterly opposed to the natural men and to the natural mind. It's disturbing, it's upsetting, it's annoying, it's too personal, and Felix felt all that, and he dismisses Paul. That is uh, something that the gospel always does. But as I was saying last Sunday night, of course, if you are just announcing the, denouncing the people who are painting the swastikas, you won't feel uncomfortable at all. If you are just talking about anti-Semitism and protesting, nothing to make you uncomfortable. You are righteous. It's the other man who's wrong always, isn't it? But that's not the gospel. If the gospel hasn't made you feel that you're a worm and it condemns you and hurts you and makes you tremble, well, then I say you've never heard it. And you are still outside its influence. That is how the apostle presents the gospel. That is how the gospel is to be listened unto and to be attended unto. But now let us come to a second matter, which is still more important. The message of the gospel. What is it about? Well, in a sense, I've already been answering that question in reminding you of what it is not about. The gospel, I say again, is not something general. Not merely the Christian attitude to this or that 
or the other, and always social, always general and political. No, no. Well, what is it about? The matter is given here perfectly simply. The first thing that it is about is our way of living. The apostle, we are told, reasoned of righteousness and of temperance. Here is the supreme preacher of the gospel. Here is the greatest evangelist and teacher that the world has ever known. Well, if we want to know what the message of the gospel is, what can we do better than look at this man and listen to him and observe what he does and what he doesn't do? These are the things he speaks about. Even when he's addressing a Roman governor, a man who's in a high position of governmental authority. Righteousness. What is that? What is righteousness? This is the first thing about which the gospel speaks to us. Not about war. Not about your particular action in joining an army or whether you're a pacifist or not. No, no. That's not the first question. The first question is righteousness. And what is that? Well, the New Testament is full of it, so there need be no trouble in discovering what is meant by righteousness. Righteousness means the life that God intended men to live. God made men and he made him perfect. He made him righteous. He endowed him with what is called an original righteousness. He was free from sin. And he desired good. He desired to please God. His ambition was to live the kind of life that God had made him for. It means uprightness. It means a condition of men and a behavior on the part of men that is satisfactory in the sight of God and well-pleasing in God's sight. That is what is meant by righteousness. Of course, it includes our conduct and our behavior in general. You remember how our Lord put it in speaking to the Pharisees, for instance. In speaking about the Pharisees, he said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, when he talks about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he is referring to their mode of living, to their practice, and to their behavior. And these, as I've been reminding you on last previous Sunday nights, uh, were religious men. They went to their temple, and they uh, prayed, and they gave a tenth of their goods to the poor, and so on, and arms and things of that kind, and were punctilious about many matters. Now, they thought that is righteousness, but Christ says, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness. In other words, you see, the apostle Paul told Felix and Drusilla, that as human beings, they were expected to live a certain kind of life. That they, like all others, were creatures of God, and that they were under God, and that God had made it perfectly plain to them what he would have them do. I can imagine him, for instance, turning to Drusilla and saying, Well, now, Drusilla, uh, as a, a Jewess, you will know perfectly well that God has made his will concerning men's life 
and way of living perfectly plain and clear. You know that God called Moses up into the mountain, kept him there for 40 days, talking to him about these very things, and sent him down with two tables of stone in his hands on which were written ten commandments. That is righteousness. That is how God tells people to live. You see, the first five describe our relationship to God. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Thou shalt not bow down to any graven image, nor make one. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Thou shalt not take the day of the Lord in vain. There they are, you see, relationship to God. That's a part of righteousness. And Paul expounded that. And then he came to the second table. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. How appropriate it was, you see. Righteousness. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or thy, or his manservant, or maidservant, or ox, or ass, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That's righteousness. Now Paul discoursed. He reasoned in his discourse about righteousness. Showing what God expected of men. The kind of life that God has mapped out for men. And pointing out, of course, that any failure to reach this constitutes what is called sin. Man was made by God for God. And the two biggest things, therefore, in the life of men, and these are the elements of righteousness, are these. A man's relationship to God. Summed up. In the first great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. And the second, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Man in his relationship to God and man living a life that is worthy of a creature that is a companion of God. That's righteousness. And Paul reasoned about that. And pointed out, as the Old Testament does everywhere, that a failure to attain unto that is sin, is evil, is reprehensible in the sight of God, is something that is hateful in the sight of God. Righteousness, the whole duty of man, man in his relationship to God, man in his relationship to his fellow men. That's righteousness, and failure to attain unto that is sin. But let me come to the second term, which is temperance. He reasoned concerning righteousness, temperance. What does this mean? Well, let's not be misled by this term. It means more than abstinence from alcoholic drinks. It means self-control. Indeed, a very good word to translate temperance is the word continence. Continence. The ability to control your desires and your lusts and your passions. Self-control, self-mastery, self-discipline, continence. The ability to put, to hold a firm rein on the desires that are teeming and working, the drives, as your modern psychologists call them, the ability to hold them in check, to hold them back. Continence, temperance. Here, I think the Apostle Paul was impressing upon the minds of Felix and Drusilla that righteousness is not merely something general, it is also something particular. 
Knowing the story of these two people as he knew, he knew that their greatest besetting sin was incontinence. Though they were both married people, they desired and lusted after one another, and they didn't control the desire and the lust. They let it go. They were incontinent. They hadn't exercised self-control, and they were continuing to live in that state of adultery, that evil, wrong association. They were guilty of this personal sin of incontinence. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see, always comes down to the particular. Oh, it's a, a very easy thing for certain intellectualists to talk about righteousness in general. And they've got their great codes and they can talk philosophically. But you know, my friend, this isn't a discussion about philosophy and morals and ethics. The philosophers are very fond of doing that. You can see them doing it on the brain's trust, often pipe in mouth. Yes, but you see, you take the trouble to find out about their personal life. And you'll, be, you'll have a shock sometimes. You'll find that men who can talk so easily about goodness, beauty, and truth, and moral values and moral points of view, are themselves guilty of adultery and are living in that state and condition. So Paul doesn't stop at righteousness. He goes on to temperance, continence, the personal sin. And unless you and I have felt and have heard this gospel speaking to us about our personal lives and about our personal sins, I say we've never heard it. We are still in a state of sin. And the Bible takes trouble, you see, to give us lists of sins. If you'd like to hear a list, let me read it to you, in order that we all might know what it means by righteousness and what it means by sin. Listen to this. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And he's already said of them that they are turned, their, even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Incontinence, intemperance, lust, ruling and governing. And it isn't only something that applies to the physical part, you notice. Jealousy and envy, whispering, backbiting, and all these things. The gospel is personal. It doesn't want your views and mine. In general about wrongdoing, it says, how are you living? What's true of you at this present moment? Who are you to give your great opinion about life and about God and whether Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe in the deity of Christ? Let's have a discussion. My dear men, says the gospel, my dear woman, before you can open your mouth about that, what about that sin that gets you down day by day? Righteousness and temperance. It's not interested in your views. But it's very interested in your life, what you're actually doing. Righteousness and temperance. What is the next thing? Well, the second great matter is, of course, judgment to come. I'm not saying this. 
It's what the Apostle Paul actually reasoned about and discussed to Felix and Drusilla. The Bible is full of this. Before you begin to talk and argue about making the world a better place, consider this, the judgment that is to come. This is the major theme of the, of the gospel. What was the message of John the Baptist? What did he say to people? This is the very thing he said. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And our blessed Lord and Savior said exactly the same thing. The judgment that God is going to judge the world. Read chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel. Read the same thing in the 21st of Luke. Read the same thing in the 13th of Mark. Our Lord is preaching and teaching about the judgment which is to come. That God is going to judge the world and everybody who's ever lived in it. The Apostle Paul, when he comes to preach, does the same thing. Peter did it on the day of Pentecost. Here he is preaching the Gospel. And the men and women cry out saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And he says, Repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's preaching judgment. Save yourselves, said the apostle, from this untoward generation. And you remember the apostle Paul in Athens of all places, preaching to Stoics and Epicureans. Now, if he were a modern man, of course, the apostle Paul... And if he were directing the religious policy of the BBC, he would have said, well, now this is wonderful. Philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans, what a wonderful opportunity for having a philosophical discussion about miracles. But this is what the apostle preached to them. The times of this ignorance God winked at. But now calleth every man everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed, above which he has given notice, in that he has raised him from the dead. Does he argue about the deity of Christ? Does he indulge in philosophical speculation about the miraculous and the supernatural and the two natures in one person? Not a word of it. Whom ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you, and what he declares is not only that Christ is the Son of God, but that he is the one who is going to come back and judge the world in righteousness. Had you considered this, my friend, had you faced this, this is the message of the gospel to you. It is to tell you and to tell me and tell every one of us this evening that we shall have to stand before God and give an account of ourselves and of our lives. Where is the righteousness which he gave men at the beginning? What have I done with my soul? What has been my attitude to the Ten Commandments? Have I kept them? How do I measure up to the Sermon on the Mount? These are the terms. And it is laid plainly before us. By the Lord himself and all his servants that we shall all have to give an account of ourselves in those terms. Now, my dear friend, I know you don't like that. But what's it matter whether we like it or not? I'm not here to vice even what I like myself. It is the plain teaching of this scripture. 
that every single one of us is going to stand before God in judgment in terms of righteousness and temperance, the moral law of God. We have all got to face him, and we cannot evade it. You can hate me, you can say you'll never listen to me again, you know it won't make the slightest difference to you. You're not dealing with me, you're dealing with God. You've got to die as I've got to die. That's why I'm preaching like this. I'll have to give an account of my preaching, of my ministry. I shall be asked, what did you do in Westminster Chapel? Did you spend the whole of your time there in talking about South Africa or about the Germans or this or that? Didn't you tell those people that they'd got souls and that I was going to judge them at the end? If I didn't, well then your blood is on my hands and I'll have to answer for this. I have to go to judgment knowing the terror of the Lord. I persuade men Righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. But thank God he didn't stop at that. Did you notice the other thing? This is what I read. And after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him, what? Concerning the faith in Christ. Thank God. Here's the gospel. What I've been saying is the introduction to it. What I've been emphasizing is that which brings men and women to see their need of the gospel. It's because they don't see their need, they don't believe the gospel. The trouble with every man who's a Christian tonight is this, that he's never realized, as he should have done, that he is going to stand before God and that his eternal destiny is involved. If a man only realized that, he would soon begin to listen to this gospel in a new way. He wouldn't want a discussion. He'd say, tell me about it. I see I'm lost. I see I'm condemned. I see I'm hopeless. I cannot lift myself up. There is evil within me. I've broken God's law. I've forgotten God. I've insulted him. I see I've been guilty of the most enormity in sin. What can I do? He listens. He says, tell me. What is this faith in Christ? Well, I can tell you. As the apostle told Felix and Drusilla, it is the great good news of salvation. What is it? It is this. The whole world lieth guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All are condemned in the sight of God. We've all, I say, forgotten him and insulted him. We've flouted his laws. We've spat upon his sanctities. We've thought we've been clever in doing so. Men of the 20th century who doesn't believe such fearful things. No, no. We've broken. We've no hope. We are utterly condemned. Do you know what the message of the gospel is? That God so loved the world that was guilty of all that that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All of us by nature and by action are perishing, and we have no hope at all in the judgment. But the message is this, the faith in Christ, who is Christ? Christ is the Son of God. He gave his only begotten Son. The babe of Bethlehem shall call his name Jesus. 
Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. The faith in Christ. That though we are so reprehensible and guilty and sinful and vile and foul, that God has sent his only son into this world. What for? To rescue us from the wrath. To save us from hell and from eternal misery and unhappiness. How did he do it? Well, this is the message. This is the thing that Paul explained to Drusilla and Felix. It's the old message, you see, of the Gospels. That this Son of God came into this world not only to teach and to tell us how to live, because that would be hopeless in itself. We couldn't do it. We couldn't even keep the Ten Commandments. This is even higher. Not to tell us to imitate him. Imitating Christ. Have you ever tried it? Well, go and try it, and you'll give up after a day. It's impossible. No, no. He sent him into this world to save. And so the son said, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save what is lost, to save us, to save our souls from this guilt, from this condemnation. How did he do it? Do you know how he did it? He identified himself with us and with our sins. Though he was Son of God, he took human nature unto him. He was born in the likeness of a man. He lived an ordinary life, shared his existence with ordinary people, endured the contradiction of sinners, but oh, let me come to it. This is how he saves. He went to John the Baptist one day and said, you must baptize me. No, no, said John. Who am I to baptize you? You ought to be baptizing me. No, said this Jesus. Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. What is he doing? He's identifying himself with our sins. He's putting himself by our side. He's taking our sins upon him. He'd come into the world to do that. And then, you see, he does it finally on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. What's the meaning of his death upon the cross? It is this. He is, he is taking your sins and mine upon him. God is laying them upon him. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Your sins and mine are put upon him. He bears their punishment. That's why he cried in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's why he died so soon of a broken heart. It was the punishment of your sins and mine. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. He has taken it upon himself. You are guilt and mine. He has stood in our place. He has received our punishment. The faith concerning Christ, what is it? It is this. That all you and I have to do is to believe that message. That Jesus is the Son of God. And that he died for our transgressions and sins. The faith in Christ, what is it? It is this. That the moment you believe in him as son of God and that he died for your sins, your sins are all blotted out as if you had never committed a single sin. They are cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness, nay more. God takes his righteousness and puts it upon 
you. Even a Felix and a Drusilla, licentious, voluptuous, carnal, incontinent, adulterous, Felix and Drusilla, if they but believe on him, confessing, acknowledging their sin and turning their backs upon it, and looking to him for strength and power to live a new life, which he will give them. It is possible to them even at that moment. The faith that is in Christ, justification by faith only. In other words, that no man makes himself a Christian. No man ever can. No man can atone for his sins. No man can ever live a life that is good enough. No man can ever work out a righteousness of his own. But that God lays our sins upon him and lays his righteousness upon us and clothes us with it. And in a moment, we pass from judgment to life, from death to everlasting life, from despair to everlasting hope. The faith that is in Christ, that is the message of the gospel. Righteousness, temperance, judgment to come, faith, in Christ and immediate and complete salvation. Very well, what a pity that I don't stop there, isn't it? But I can't stop there because my story doesn't stop there. That is what Paul reasoned about, as he alone could do it. But what happened? What happened was this. Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the offer and communed with him. And then after two years, another man came in Felix's room. And Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. He didn't believe it. He didn't act upon it. He didn't become a Christian. He rejected it all. And especially the faith in Christ. He went on in unbelief as he was. Do you realize what that is? There are many people in this congregation who are like Felix and Drusilla. You've heard this gospel many a time. You haven't believed it. Can I tell you this evening very plainly why you don't believe it? Oh, you say, I've got my answer. It's a matter of intellect. I'm a man of learning, I'm a man of knowledge, I'm a man of intellect and of understanding, and it's because of my intellect I reject your gospel. Let me show you how you're fooling yourself. Can you honestly read this story and still tell me that it's a matter of intellect? You see what you're committing yourself to? You are saying that Felix and Drusilla had greater intellects than the Apostle Paul. Had you ever thought of that? You're on the wrong side, my friend. You're in the wrong camp. Here's the colossus. Here's the genius. Here's the mastermind of the centuries, the Apostle Paul. Here's mind. Here's intellect and understanding. You're in the other camp. It isn't reason, you see. It's never reason. It is never intellect and reason and knowledge and understanding that prevents anybody from becoming a Christian. What is it? Well, it is always what it is here. It is always moral. It's always moral trouble. And the intellect is the camouflage that we put up to conceive the morality. But I want to prove this to you. 
What is it that left Felix and Drusilla as unbelievers? Oh, it's nothing but the power of sin and the debasing effect of sin. Where do you see that, says someone? I see it here. Do you see what the power of sin in Felix and Drusilla did to them? It made them go against reason. Paul reasoned with them. Tell me, what can you say against the biblical way of life? What is the reasoned objection to the Ten Commandments? Tell me, what is it? What's your reasoned objection to the Sermon on the Mount? What is it? That's what the gospel calls you to, righteousness and temperance. Is there anything unreasonable about it? Why do you say that you're not a Christian because of your reason? Tell me on the other side, is it because of your giant intellect that you fall a victim to that personal sin of sex or of drink, or of jealousy, or of envy? Is that because of your great reason and your great intellect? Can't you see that you've got the whole thing utterly reversed? It is the sinful life of Felix and Drusilla that's unreasonable. And there is nothing in the world more reasonable and intelligent and noble tonight than the gospel of Jesus Christ with its call for righteousness and temperance. They went against reason. But there's something even worse. They even went against their conscience. Why did Felix tremble? Because of his conscience. As he listened to this great little man speaking, he knew he was right. He knew he was utterly wrong himself. And he knew it to this extent that he was trembling. His conscience was accusing him and condemning him. He knew that what he'd done about Drusilla was wrong. And that many other things that he'd done were wrong. That the fact that he was keeping Paul in prison was wrong. He knew it. And his conscience was accusing him. But in spite of his conscience, as well as his reason, he persists in his evil course. That is the power of sin, my friend. It makes a man go against his reason. It makes him, makes him silence and drown his own conscience. I believe there was another factor here, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. He even fights against that and gets rid of Paul. It makes a man go against everything that is highest and best in his own constitution and the gracious influence of the Spirit of God upon him. It was in spite of all this and in spite of listening to this man of God and his irrefutable argument and his holy, wonderful life, that Felix and Drusilla dismissed Paul. And why? Well, the answer is given. He wanted money. You see, the kind of life they were living was a very expensive life. And you're short of money if you're always gambling and drinking and indulging your sex and paying for your prostitutes. It takes money. The life of the world, the flashy life. You're always in need of money. He wanted money. So he kept on sending even for Paul, hoping that Paul would bribe him to set him free. He's no conception of justice 
or of righteousness in his exalted position, but money to buy pleasure to get success. He lived for it. What else? Popularity. Felix willing to show the Jews a pleasure left Paul bound. He knows nothing about rightness and righteousness and justice and equity, but he likes to be popular. He hopes the Jews will say, Old Felix, he was a wonderful fellow after all, wasn't he? He wasn't a Jew, but you know, he left his men in our charge, wanted the Jews to speak well of them. Popularity. What other people are going to say? What other people think? What other people do? To sum it up in a phrase, they were interested in their lives in this world only, and saw nothing beyond it. That is why men do not believe the gospel. It is the power of sin that paralyzes reason, silences conscience, and makes them live for such unworthy and base motives. They put money and pleasure before a righteousness that satisfies God. They put men and women, the Jews, the people in your office, your fellow students, the people in the same profession, they put their opinion before the opinion of God. They put this passing world and its glittering prizes before their eternal and everlasting welfare. I ask you, in the name of reason, is that intellect? Is that reason? Is that understanding? It is nothing but sheer folly. Let me prove to you the height of the folly. I'm going to end with just another little footnote of history. Two years or so after this incident, in other words, about A.D. 63, Felix's brother, Pallas, fell out of favor with the Roman emperor and was dismissed. And so was Felix. So what the Jews thought of him no longer mattered. He was no longer governor. He's lost everything. He's been dismissed. The money's no value when he hadn't got any. The popularity had gone. His great position had vanished. All that he'd built on suddenly went like that because of the whim, the passing whim of an emperor. As for Drusilla... In A.D. 79, Drusilla and her son were suddenly killed in an unexpected eruption of the volcano Vesuvius. And in a moment, passed from time to eternity. That footnote of history is important and significant. What are you living for? Why are you rejecting this gospel? Is it because it's going to put an end to the life you're living? Is it because it says no to certain darling pleasures, certain lusts that you enjoy? Is it that? Is it that you're afraid of the opinion of others and want to be popular? 
Is it that you're thinking of your career and what happens to you and your life in this world? My dear friend, that is the height of folly. If you put things like that before the kind of life that was lived by Jesus of Nazareth, righteous and temperate, if you put that before the blessings of God in this gospel of salvation, if you put that, I say, before the smile and the favor of God, then the certain knowledge that you need longer, no longer fear death and the grave, because when you come to die, it will just mean that you're being ushered into heaven and into a glory which shall last throughout eternity. I plead with you. Look at the case of Felix and Drusilla. Listen to this message about righteousness, temperance, judgment to come. And the faith in Christ that is possible to you here this evening, which tells you that you've got nothing to do but to acknowledge your sin and folly to God and believe the message concerning his Son and his atoning, redeeming death and the glory that awaits you. And immediately you are forgiven and become children of God and can begin to look forward to that everlasting glory. Look at them. Do the exact opposite. Don't shake off what I've been saying as they shook off Paul. Follow it out. Reason it through. Think about it. Face yourself in the judgment. See your lost condition. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Go after him. And be made eternally saved. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.